0: You are listening to the You Are A Lawyer podcast. I am the podcast host, Kyla DeNano, a 2015 law school graduate. This podcast was created to share the experiences and successes of law school graduates who created their own paths to career success. In episode 34, I am speaking with a filmmaker and lawyer. This guest combined her holistic creative side with her experiences as a public defender to become a filmmaker. Based in Seattle, Washington, Today's guest is Catherine Harvey. Welcome to the podcast, Katherine. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Would you please tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So I am someone who has had many lives in one lifetime, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I would say in my 20s, I started out as an artist doing videography work, art direction, I published a magazine, a kind of an art magazine called Shades of Contradiction, a zine slash magazine, we'll call it, and then transitioned in my 30s to going to law school and becoming a lawyer. I worked mm-hmm. throughout law school at the Los Angeles Public Defender's Office, knowing that eventually that's where I wanted to end up. And shortly, really shortly after becoming a lawyer, I had a almost kind of spiritual experience that really made me realize that I was an artist, that I was a creative person and that if I didn't get back to that, then ultimately I would be very unhappy and I wouldn't really be serving communities, the world, wherever I want to serve in the best way. So now I'm a filmmaker and an artist. Okay.
0: So... You went to law school at Loyola, Los Angeles, and you went to undergrad at the University of Washington. Why did you study cross-cultural communications?
1: (laughs) So that was a self-designed major. Oh. I have a very rebellious spirit. I didn't (laughs) want to do a regular degree. I thought it seemed very boring and formulaic. And there was a possibility of designing my own. So it was cross-cultural communication in America. And I had to create the courses and the classes and the vision for it. And it was, you know, the the tagline for it was that it was an exploration of race, class, and gender in the United States. So that was kind of my way of taking women's studies courses, ethnicity studies courses, psychology, sociology, and... of learning things the way that i wanted to learn them i -hmm. suppose and it was also towards the end of that that you know i started picking up a camera and moved into filmmaking as well
0: so yeah i designed it myself yeah and do you think the psychology courses are what got you interested in storytelling that made you want to pick up the camera
1: maybe i think the sociology the psychology the two of them i would say
0: I find that a lot of lawyers are naturally curious, you know, we're just always looking at and wondering what else is there. So I'm sure that's propelled you in being a filmmaker.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I I mean, you know, and that was also one of the things with the law is that it's less exploratory to me. It allows Mm -hmm. less room really for, for movement. You know, that Iraq thing is pretty strong throughout. Yeah,
0: it absolutely is.
1: Yeah, and you know what else? It's very hierarchical, Mm -hmm. um, which also, to me, also makes it very patriarchal. Yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah, this is true.
1: And you're really forced into thinking and acting in that way while you're there in order to get through it. And I'm realizing that kind of more and more through time. I mean, so much of education is like that,
0: not just law school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, law school has has it especially, though. <laughs> it, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so I actually started law school when I was 28, and I found it to be really beneficial to have worked before. You know, I didn't go straight from undergrad to law school. Did you find that having lived a little bit before you attended law school helped you appreciate law school?
1: <laughs> I definitely felt very different from other people in law school, is I think okay. more how I felt. I definitely felt that, yes, I had life experience to bring to it. And that was especially something that I noticed even when I was in law school, still interning at the public defender's office, was that a lot of people were coming in, and I would say more so as prosecutors, who didn't really have the life experience to realize what they were really doing in these huge positions of power Mm -hmm. as prosecutors. That was extremely noticeable to me. But really, honestly, law school was very difficult for me because, you know, for the prior 10 years, everything that I did was very holistic. It was very creative. Yeah. And suddenly you're in law school and it's very rational and it moves very quickly. I realized very early on there was not a time or place to really question the law, but only to learn the law. And that when I really wanted to dive into something and analyze it or really understand something that really what was happening is I was getting behind in other classes because it's such an intense environment. So yeah. I found it very frustrating, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. You know, they're preparing you to pass the bar mm-hmm. and, you know, which is no small feat but you know, I took the bar in California. It's this three day, super intense test. So Yeah, it is what it is. I hope hope it changes. I hope maybe it is changing, but. mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One other question here about law school, and then we'll get to life after law school. Did you enjoy your criminal law or criminal procedure courses when you were in law school? (laughs) No. Okay.
1: (laughs) No, in fact, that kind of refers to what I was speaking about because I remember we first learned Conspiracy law and Mm -hmm. aiding and abetting. And one of the first cases, you know, it was one of those big drug conspiracy cases where they take down a lot of people. And one of them was this Mexican man who was a truck driver at the airport. Right. Yeah. And of course, because of the way conspiracy law and everything works, you know, this poor guy went down for, you know, who knows, 30, 40, 60 years, you know, how it goes Mm -hmm. for very little involvement. And, you know, did he even know what he was even involved in? Who knows, you know, and I was very frustrated with it. And I realized that it didn't matter that I was frustrated with it, that nobody in the class cared, because they were just writing down the laws without consciousness, Mm -hmm. without any consciousness. And, I'm sorry, you're probably not going to hear me say anything good about law school. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I remember the first day, you know, we're all in there as our one big class. And our very first introduction <laughs> was someone drawing a diagram on the board showing where we're all used to be, right? Which is at the top of the class. Mm-hmm. Very smart. And that at the end of the semester, 98% of us were going to be here down at the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know? I was just like, wow, that's day one. That's how you're introducing our experience to us, which which again, I mean, you know, it's that right away, it's almost like the adversarial system becomes adversarial even
0: in law school. Yeah, okay, so all of us aren't the top 2%, but the rest of us are still here, right? (laughs)
1: yeah exactly we have value we have value too because I'll tell you I was definitely not at the top two (laughs) percent most people aren't exactly exactly. (laughs) you know that was never my thing was to go to a big big firm and make money but that's what you know at least at the time when I was in law school that's what most people there really wanted to do yeah yeah I, I will say this though there's a legitimacy a pride A way in which I can operate in the world now that I could not operate at before, perhaps. When you come out of law school, there's no bullshit, right? Like you also have those skills to kind of get to the heart of something and break it down. Yeah. Right. And it's not a skill that I necessarily had before going into law school.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, spoiler alerts, spoiler alerts. If you have seen the film, The Prison Within, you will completely understand what we're about to talk about. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. It's available on Tubi, is where I watched it. Also, Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and we will put all of the links in the show description. So now, Catherine, let's discuss this film. It was released in August 2020, and I watched it. I found it to be breathtaking. And... There were a lot of things in the film that I was not expecting. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about it. Please do, yes. (laughs) So starting from the opening scene, actually, before we even get to the first scene, is a quote. And it says, trauma is a fact of life, but doesn't have to be a life sentence. Do you think that that is the overarching theme of the entire movie, The Prison Within?
1: Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. It could be because I would say that it fits in some way to all the facets and ideas that I wanted covered. You know, I mean, basically saying it's a fact of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence is that we can move through, we can transform individually and as a culture.
0: Yeah. So I've been in therapy for maybe the last three or four years just because being an adult is hard. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. before then, you couldn't tell me that trauma was just supposed to be here, right? My life is supposed to be a fairy tale. And so I saw the quote and I was like, it kind of gave you permission to allow trauma to be here, but that it doesn't have to define you.
1: I love so, that. Beautiful. Thank you. For yes.
0: Sharing <laughs> I love the quote. So in the film, you show a lot of different sides. You show the perspectives of some of the victims. You go through the stories of a couple of different inmates. As they're speaking, you're showing other men nodding along because they agree. You're showing how they resonate to the stories of of everyone as they're sharing. Was that a conscious decision or why did you think that was important?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, healing happens in community Mm -hmm. and especially for these guys when they're behind the walls and they only have each other, Yeah. You know, for me, everything that's shown in the circle really goes back to the title of the prison within, right? Is that in order for them to heal themselves and then to also come out and help heal the communities and the cultures that they come from, it requires deep introspection and deep accountability. And, you know, people holding you your friends holding you to that accountability to go deep. And so what I wanted is for people to see themselves reflected in the men as they were watching the film, right? To to go into the film and think, I have nothing in common with these people. And then you're watching the film and you think, oh, wow, I do, right? No, Mm -hmm. different people can connect to it in different ways. And really, I think also just seeing them work so deeply and so honestly on themselves, you know, really more so than we see people on the outside doing. Okay.
0: One of the things I loved about the circle was that, you know, it's a series of, I think, at least six or eight men that were sitting down and they were speaking. And I apologize, I forget the name of the doctor who was facilitating, but she said that they get together every week for 50 to 80 weeks. And I was like, okay, that's quite a commitment, but also it probably takes you that long to feel comfortable enough to want to share.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like 50 to 80 weeks. And then there's even other levels that they can go on to after that. So I think, I I do think it takes a while Mm
2: -hmm. for,
1: of course, for that trust and camaraderie to be built within the circle But I would say that the length of it is more so to truly give time and space to connecting the dots of their traumas that led to the crime, right? Because that's the beginning, right? And then once that happens, then full accountability can happen as well, right? Where it's not that I committed the crime because of this, but... These factors led me to commit this crime, but ultimately I did it and I need to take full accountability and responsibility for that. And the layers to get there, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty deep stuff. And Mm -hmm. that's another thing that I wanted to show is people in prison as human beings in ways that we hadn't seen before. You know, I think that we think that people who commit violence, especially people who commit murder that they're evil, that, you know, there's something very wrong with them, that we couldn't do that. Uh, You know, they hold this deep in their bones, deep Mm -hmm. in their bodies, deep in their consciousness. And the weight of carrying that is huge, Yeah, huge. And I really wanted people to connect to that and see that.
0: Yeah, there's a scene, it goes on for a good couple minutes where a man is walking in a field and he's explaining how he attended what's called a survivor's panel. Again, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen the film. And he mentions how victims of a crime similar to the crime he committed were able to come in and they were kind of surrogate victims. They were sharing how the crime affected them and how they felt on the other side. Why did you want to include that story?
1: Oh my gosh, that's such a pivotal story (laughs) to the film. Mm -hmm. Well, one, because it corresponds to Dion's story, right? And, you know, from the beginning, that was the idea is that it had to be people on the inside and it had to be survivors on the outside. And that by showing their stories that we really see that it's all the same. Yeah. they're on parallel journeys. We're all on parallel journeys to heal our trauma in some way. And that Troy was first a victim in so many ways, even though he was in prison for causing harm to someone, the beauty of him being so honest and saying, at first I didn't understand their pain, yeah. you know, that, that it takes a while, right? That it takes a while to really get to a point where we can really understand another's experience.
0: Yeah. A lot of people have heard hurt people hurt people before, but it really resonates when you're hearing someone explain, well, I was hurt by XYZ for a number of years. And so for me, it was just commonplace to just hurt another person. Very interesting, I thought, to hear the people behind the wall explaining that and saying, yeah, these things that you hear are not just common phrases. It's actually true. So...
1: Yeah, and I think that's hard for people to understand, like, if you're living a life as a child where life is not valued, how can you really be taught that when your brain is, you know, when all of you is still developing? Yeah. And I will say this, too, you know, when I first started making the film, and I would tell people about the film, people would look at me like I was speaking Mandarin. Like, <laughs> I'm you
2: know, sure
1: what are you talking about? Why, why would we care about these people? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really saw, I really noticed very early on that despite how, quote unquote, progressive people were, that it ended as soon as someone had committed an act of violence. Yeah. And through the years, as I kept making the documentary, all of this science is coming out about trauma and brain development, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Black Lives Matters happen, right? That, yeah. you know, people are start talking about intergenerational trauma and systemic oppression. And, you know, all of these things are kind of coming into the mainstream zeitgeist more and more. And so that's been really interesting to see and notice that shift on a community level.
2: Yeah.
0: What I would call the third act is the story of a woman whose husband was killed and how she couldn't wait for the person who killed her husband to be convicted. She was cheering, they had a party after he was convicted and then her heart was changed and she did see the humanity of this person. Do you think the fact that you showed all these different perspectives and angles came from law school and you trying to be unbiased?
1: No, no. I wouldn't say that that's where it came from. Okay. Yeah, I think it definitely came so much more really from my experience teaching in the prisons, which is what I did at law school.
0: What made you decide to start teaching in prison? Did you just see a job opportunity and you thought that would be beneficial or? Well,
1: I moved to Washington State and I actually met up again with a former professor because I was back in Washington State and she was teaching at this organization called University Beyond Bars. Okay. So that of course piqued my interest and it was through that Mm -hmm. and it was a volunteer position.
0: It was definitely not a paid position. So what was, what was that decision like? I mean, I have visited a prison before and it is not the simplest thing. There are a number of security background checks, you know, you must've really looked up to this professor that you followed along and said, yeah, this would be a great opportunity for me as well.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. But it was something I wanted to do. It was, you know, I didn't feel that my work in this space was done just because I was no longer a lawyer. Okay. You know, you're going into a prison every week Mm -hmm. and really forming relationship with people in there and learning about them and hearing their stories. And most of the men that I was teaching had LWAP. Which is life without parole, which means that to this day they're still sentenced to die in prison. And probably they should have been out years and years and years and years and years ago. Not probably, absolutely should have. Absolutely should have. Yeah.
0: So, in one of your interviews, you mentioned that it was difficult for you to film behind bars and film the men that were in the circle. How did you overcome some of those challenges? And did you use your legal skills to kind of push your way in? Yes, I
1: did actually, (laughs) because, you know, you have to get permission from the warden and then that goes up to really like the top of the chain of the CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and then back down to the warden. And really the whole time, no one wants to deal with you. Mm. You know, I had to be so persistent and people were actually telling me it's very hard to get in. You're probably not going to get in. And it's it's funny, it's just one of those things where I was like, I'm going to get in. I just know I'm going to get in. And so I just kept being extremely persistent. But I do think that my experience as a public defender and as a lawyer gave me some legitimacy in terms of my proposals to go in and film. And I would also say that I knew how to speak the language. I, Mm. I knew the types of language that the CDCR would be looking for. Yeah, but it definitely wasn't easy to get in. But then, then we got in, then we got in and <laughs> then we had this amazing public information officer. His name is Sam Robinson. And, you know, slowly he started realizing you guys are doing a good thing. You're doing a good thing. So I'm going to give you more time to film. When I asked, can we go into the cell blocks and film in the cell blocks, which originally we weren't really allowed to do. He let us into the cell blocks. He let us out on the yard You know, I think he saw what we were trying to do in terms of kind of these like paradigm shifts to get people to be seen as human. Yeah. And then it started becoming easier.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and your story definitely does show them as human. I mean, there's a part where someone mentions us versus them, meaning people who are in prison and people who are not. And also the segregation of you've committed this crime, you are an other. You know, we don't want to see you. Someone else can deal with you. So I do think once they started to trust that your story that you were telling was not going to be exploitive, um, they definitely did give you more access, so.
1: And I would say also, too, that in terms of the men that we were filming, that part was easy. That's what people usually ask me. How did you get them Mm -hmm. to open up and to trust you? And, you know, I think it was twofold is that one, you know, these men are already emotionally intelligent and attuned to the work that they're doing and want to share that. But, you know, I think that they saw that they could trust me because of my past experience, right? Like, it wasn't new for me to walk into a prison. It wasn't new for me to form these relationships. There was no fear. There was none of that there.
2: Yeah,
0: I could see that. So I want to ask a couple of questions about you being a filmmaker, just to Get some more understanding for myself as well as others but what exactly does a director do do you come up with the storyline are you setting different scheduling you know parameters what what does a director do
1: Oh that's such a good question I mean sometimes a director is brought in only to direct okay right so someone else would have come up with the concept someone else would have produced it. And the director is coming in to kind of, you know, go in, let's say with the cinematographer. Okay. And decide the scope of what was going to be shot, the storyline, how that's going to work, and then works with the editor to put it together. So, you know, the director is ultimately bringing the story to life, putting the narrative together.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And sometimes that's done with a producer as well. In this case, Film is such a collaborative medium. And it first started just with me and my husband, Massimo Bardetti. We were doing everything. <laughs> so directing, producing, sound, the cinematography. We went into the prison. It was just the two of us. And that was a lot. That yeah. was a lot. And then we brought an editor on, Eric Frith, who was amazing. And then, you know, the film would kind of stop and go because it's independent filmmaking. You're really always looking for money to keep the production going and the post-production going.
2: Okay.
1: And uh, then our producer, Erin Kinway, came on and that was just this wonderful godsend. She came on as executive producer... And as a producer and brought in the funding and really was like my right hand woman. We really collaborated and worked together to finish the film because before she came in, it was probably, you know, maybe like 65% edited. We still needed to do another shoot and we needed the money. We needed the money to do it. So she came in, she really believed in the film, but then really brought a lot of really wonderful
0: expertise as a producer as well. Okay. Were you filming with large camera crews and, you know, these big box cameras, or did you just have a small handheld device and were capturing things from the background?
1: So before when we went in, like I was saying, it was just me and Massimo. We were the crew. We were the crew. And every shoot had two cameras. At some point, another cinematographer came on, Mario Furloni, who's really wonderful to shoot kind of the last two things that we needed to shoot. But the big cameras and all of that, that's very kind of like broadcast in TV. Um, We definitely did not have those. You know, the technology has changed so much where you can really get a lot out of a smaller camera.
2: Yeah.
0: I was especially wondering, because the scenes at the circle, I was curious if, you know, you had this huge (laughs) camera sitting over the shoulder of someone while you're filming. um, Or if it was more of an intimate type thing, so...
1: No, very, 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 very
0: intimate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then also, how is being a director different from being a filmmaker? I noticed that you call yourself a filmmaker as well. <laughs> well,
1: because, you know, for The Prison Within, it was my baby. It came from my heart, yeah. right? It's, it's not like somebody came to me and said, hey, I have this idea for this film. Can you help me direct or produce it, right? Okay. So I was the director. I was the producer. I was one of the writers. I mean, you know, it like it literally, (laughs) like it was my baby. It was Mm -hmm. my baby. It was my idea. I want to make this film with this concept, the prison within. And so, in that, I feel like I took on all these different roles. And that's also what I'm doing now with these next upcoming projects, because that is how independent film works. Yeah. You, You take on many, many different roles. I would say, though, that even though I do a lot of producing and I've done a lot of producing, it's really the directing that I really love and I feel the most drawn to because that's where you really get into the art of the storytelling and putting things together with the editor and even the, you know, sound design, you work with a composer, a color corrector at the end, right? That's what I really enjoy is okay. really being involved in all those pieces.
0: So I, I think I'm seeing the difference. The director is someone who is directing all of your scenes and films and, and working with other people. But then a filmmaker is the person who kind of had the idea or the story. So I do see how you could be both <laughs> if it was your idea and your baby, but then you worked with others to put it together and, and create it. Yeah, you are both a director and a filmmaker.
1: Yeah, and a producer as well. Yeah, okay. so okay. Mm-hmm. it's funny because it also shifts per project right okay. like sometimes i mean you know it's very silly sometimes people have a producer credit when they just gave money and that's kind of mm. part of it <laughs> so it's pretty fluid especially an independent film okay. i think when you're looking at more mainstream films that's where the roles are very clear okay
0: all right so you wore all the hats
1: <laughs> all the hats
0: yes yes so just out of curiosity for a 90 minute film this film was an hour and 30 minutes how much footage did you not use? You, you have days and days of other footage.
1: Yeah. You know, you hear about some of these productions and it's, they have so much footage. You're just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, that's just too much. <laughs> so I wouldn't say it was like that, but, you know, we filmed three different circles and so much more happened in those circles okay. that ended up in the film. And you know, it it's definitely still sits with me of wouldn't it be wonderful to have kind of like a web series to kind of put some of these smaller circles together into vignettes just because I want the beauty that I witnessed
2: to be the light
1: of day. But you know, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, you never know. And how do you determine which stories to share? Well that's where the directing really comes. Okay. So originally I was very intentional about who was gonna be really focused on in this circle, right? Sam, who's in the film, you know, I knew that his story was very much connected to intergenerational trauma, right? Mm -hmm. To to growing up black and in the racist South. And Barry, he's a white man and he was in the military and ended up, you know, having PTSD and going into prison soon after that, right? Yeah. Everyone had these different threads and I really wanted to create kind of this quilt or this tapestry of different stories that we're tapping into different aspects really of the American experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And then when you're cutting it together, when you're editing it together, it of course becomes something yeah. <laughs> pretty different because you can't put it all in. And so you have to narrow the tapestry, I suppose. Yeah right? You kind of have to take different parts, different patches of the quilt and create this smaller quilt that's going to flow together in this really beautiful way, right? Like Dion wasn't introduced into the film until really 30 minutes into the film. And that took a long time to come to Like at one point she was at the beginning and I finally knew when I put her in at about 30 minutes that like, oh, this works because at that point, right, I have you, I have, Mm -hmm. I've, I've opened you up with these men's stories, right, and your heart is so open, and then I'm like, and now, (laughs) here you go, and then that just takes it to a whole other level, so, that's where the maddening <laughs> and the fun part comes in is how to really get to that way where the story is being told in, the, in really the most effective way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and I could see a little bit of, of your law school IRAC you know issue <laughs> yes. reasoning analysis coming to play because you had to tie the whole story up and, and make it seamless so. Yep yep
1: okay. that's a good point. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned that had you not attended law school you may have been a filmmaker but you definitely would not have produced The Prison Within. What would you say to someone who's considering going to law school and whether or not that limits you know their creativity in the future?
1: I think everyone's different Mm -hmm. you know I mean there's people out there I don't know like those very famous writers I don't know if John Grisham is one of them but there's where they're like lawyers during the day and best-selling novelists by night, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, Oh my God, who are these people? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think it just depends. I, I really think it depends on the person and, you know, for me, as a public defender, to me, I almost feel that it's unconstitutional. The pace that's kept up and the, the amount of clients are coming in and the limited resources that we yeah. have, it took everything from me. I think I would still be a public defender if I didn't realize that I needed to be an artist, that I needed to be a creative person. And okay. that if I didn't make that shift, that wasn't going to be good for me, ultimately. Yeah. And
0: And, you know, even as you're speaking through your films, you're still advocating. It's just in a different way than being a public defender. I will say it's very
1: painful paying Mm -hmm. the student loans every (laughs) month. (laughs) However, I'm not the type of person who would make a film about something in which I feel no personal connection to or experience, you know? And I mean, are you kidding me? Especially as a white woman making a film about incarceration and, you know, going in and asking these people for their stories of intergenerational trauma, you know, I felt like I had the background and the experience to go into that in in a legitimate way. And I knew more than enough (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how to handle the contents with a lot of intention and a lot of grace and a lot of integrity, right? That was very, very important to me. And had I not gone to law school, had I not become a public defender,
0: and none of this would have happened if I had not gone to law school. Yeah. (laughs) So I just have one last question here for you. When I started the film, I was expecting it to be a story about rehabilitation. And I noticed that you actually don't tell whether you believe in rehabilitation if people can be rehabilitated. You just show the humanity of people who are in prison. What do you hope that the audience is taking from the film?
1: What I really hope is that people see the deeper level of it. Mm -hmm. To me, the film operates on kind of like a narrative level and then also on a deeper level. And we need processes of truth and reconciliation in this country, really, within ourselves and as a culture. I mean, you know, that's interesting. I even have a little bit of a problem with the word rehabilitated. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's a very kind of institutionalized word, right?
2: Oh,
0: it is. I was completely expecting it to be John and Sam are in prison and look at how great they are now. And the film is not that. The Prison Within is just showing John and Sam are people. (laughs) They are here and they are people. And I found that it challenged what I thought even from the title of the film, from preparing to watch the film, you know, it challenged a lot of things. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, you know, I would
1: say feel like what we're seeing the men doing is that process of truth and reconciliation within themselves, you know, Um, and I want people to do that with themselves, right? And then because once we do that, once we take responsibility for our harms and the way we've hurt ourselves, the way we've hurt others, I think it can only go to kind of create these paradigm shifts that need to happen in our world as well. So this idea of the prison within this idea that we've created individual prisons for ourselves as well as these cultural prisons as well by the way that we keep shoving everything under the rug Mm -hmm. and so i'm hoping that those elements seep in in some way even though it's not necessarily forthright as you're watching the film if that makes sense
0: yeah it does and that perspective will get out. I mean, certainly the audience will hear about it. And as they go and watch the film, The Prison Within, they'll see the narrative side of it and, and understand these stories. So, well, Thank
1: right, you so, so much. That, those were really great questions. Those were really yeah. different Different podcasts asked different questions. That was very mm-hmm. enjoyable. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, well, <laughs> because I'm a lawyer. <laughs> well, thank you, Catherine. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Uh huh. Bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. While you are here, subscribe to the show, leave a rating, and tell a friend about this episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday.
2: Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.